If you have a Bible, please open it to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the uh, text on the back of the notes that are in the bulletin. And this morning, we will um, look at Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John, the, the wedding at Cana. In many respects, our, t- our Gospel has been building to this point. This is the culmination of day after the next day, after the next day, after the next day. Um, and so I'd like to begin by reading our text, then we'll have a word of prayer, and we'll dive in. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master at the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Lord God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see your glory, that in this account, the first miracle of your son on earth, we might see his glory, that we might believe, that we might share in the life that is light. In Jesus' name, amen. We start our second chapter of John this morning. I'll remind you that John began his gospel with an 18-verse prologue, introduction, where he lays out clearly the deity of Christ. He is the creator God. All things are made through him. He is both with God and is God. He is distinct from the Father, and yet he is the Father's fellow and equal. He is the life and light of men, and he is the one who took on flesh and lived among us. And then we move to the testimony, the verbal testimony of men. John the Baptist, initially, testifying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then, after he gives testimony on the second day, we move to the testimony of those first disciples of Jesus. We have found the Messiah. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, culminating with Nathaniel's great confession at the end of chapter 1, verse 49. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. 
Now we move to a different testimony, a testimony of works, of miracles. Jesus will appeal to these very things in chapter 5. He has multiple witnesses from men. John the Baptist alludes to the witness of the Holy Spirit. And now we get to this miracle, this first miracle in his hometown or near his hometown in Galilee. So we're going to look at this in four points. The first, the setting. The setting, verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So we get the when, the what, the where, and the who. When on the third day. Now this almost certainly is the third day from the day with Nathaniel. The reason why I say that is if you go back and follow John's numbering, Day one is the day in verse 19 of chapter one when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. Then in verse 29, that'd be day one, the next day, so day two. Verse 35, the next day is day three. So Jesus can't be staying the day with the disciples in the house, come and see, and going to this wedding. So the third day most naturally would be three days later or the sixth or seventh day, depending on how you're counting. I I like to simplify it as a week, but I I wouldn't argue the point if you wanted to say it was six days. And so your blank here is the final day of John's week. And the reason why I say final day is you can see at the end of our text this morning, John lets go, clearly, of the tight chronology. They stayed there a few days. Well, how many? doesn't matter. A few days. So what we get is that John wants us to know that from the day the Jews in Jerusalem sent people to interrogate John the Baptist to this wedding is a tight sequence of days. And I've suggested to you a number of reasons for that. One, it continues the echo of Genesis. John's gospel begins echoing Genesis in the beginning. And what is followed in Genesis chapter 1? But a record of seven days of creation. John's gospel begins in the beginning, the creation of light in Jesus, the making of all things, followed by a week, and then a wedding, and in Genesis, a marriage. Also, this highlights Jesus' authenticity. Jesus is compelling. People spend a few scant hours with Jesus, and they are making the boldest claims about him without qualification or hesitation. It becomes clear. Any of these who spent time with him immediately became convinced of who he was. You are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. You are the Messiah. And so this completes, this is the culmination of where we're heading to. Another reason why we know this is the culmination is look at verse 11. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now keep your finger here and turn to the back of the book to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. If you remember in our introduction, I pointed out that John helpfully gives us a thesis for his book, why he wrote. Not all Books of the Bible have them, but when we do find one, it directs our attention. It tells us what we should be looking for, what the author's goal is. Now look at this in in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs 
in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So Jesus did many other signs. John's going to record seven, eight, nine signs in his gospel. Jesus did many more. And John's saying, I handpicked these. These were selected that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing may have life in his name. Now look at the intersection of that language back in 2.11. This, the first of his signs, many other signs Jesus did, and he manifested his glory, linking back to the prologue, we have beheld his glory, glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And his disciples believed a sign revealing glory, culminating in faith, That's why John wrote this book of signs. So it makes sense that this wedding is the culmination of the introduction. We're locking right into John's purpose in writing. We should pay attention. Our eyes should be wide open. Lest we fail to see the glory as well. So when on the third day, the final week of John's John's week. Now what is it? It's a wedding. It's a wedding. Now, potentially, Jewish weddings were much larger affairs than most of our weddings. I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding that lasted a week long. But likely, that's how long it is. We get that date from Judges 14.12. Samson's wedding, the time of the judges, he says, let me put the riddle forward to you, Judges 14.12. And if you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast. So something like that. A multi-day event. This would be a huge community event. We get an idea from this, the amount of wine Jesus makes that many more than just those people living at Cana, probably the entire Galilee region, or much of it, is gathered. This is a huge societal event. It's a time of rejoicing and feasting and celebration. And Jesus sanctifies it and blesses it with his first miracle. Just as God blessed the couple in the garden, be fruitful and multiply, here Jesus begins his ministry. He begins his miracle-working ministry in his hometown, celebrating a wedding. We, we don't know who the people are. Were they believers? Were they not believers? It doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is Jesus blesses what we call this creation ordinance. Wedding is an institution that predates even the law of Moses. It's given to all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, and Jesus is a fan of it. Jesus approves. Jesus doesn't want the celebration to end prematurely. Okay? What? Now, where? Cana in Galilee. Cana in Galilee. Now, what's significant here is this begins a literary unit. I've mentioned um, the, the literary device inclusio before, and inclusio is kind of bookends. It's a way an author helps us mark out a text. We have one right in our text itself. Verse 1, on the third day, there's a wedding in Cana. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana. But now turn all the way to the end of chapter 4. From here, from 2 through 446, is one literary unit. So he came again to Cana in Galilee. And lest we fail to make the connection where he had made the water wine. So these are the bookends of this unit. And two through the middle of four here has an overarching theme that shows up again and again and again, introduced thematically here with the the miracle. And it's the theme of Jesus fulfilling, replacing, 
eclipsing things. So that later in chapter 2, they're talking about the physical temple, Herod's temple. He says, destroy this temple in the three days, I'll raise it up. And he was speaking of the temple of his body. In chapter 3, with Nicodemus, Nicodemus is thinking about natural human birth. Jesus talks about spiritual birth. He must be born again. Jesus is like the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. He goes to the woman in, in uh, the, sorry, the uh, Samaritan woman, and she's talking about water, and he talks about living water. She talks about a place of worship, this mountain or in Jerusalem, and he says what matters is people worshiping God in spirit and in truth. In every instance, Jesus is bringing something greater. He's replacing something, filling something up, and all this links back in the prologue to verse 16 of chapter 1. For from his fullness we have all received, and then, if you remember when we went through this, a grace replacing a grace, a grace in place of a grace. And this miracle where Jesus takes ordinary water and replaces it with wedding wine sets up that theme for us in this chunk. So, at Cana, this is also Nathaniel's hometown, we learn later in the gospel. And then we get the who, and the order here is significant. You'd think Jesus would be listed first, but his mother isn't listed first. Interestingly, Jesus' mother is not named in the Gospel of John. Either John assumes we know who we are, most like who she is, most likely, or it isn't of critical importance to him. She's really only named here, and when Jesus hangs on the cross, and he looks at her and says, Woman, behold your sons, behold your mother. This is it. These are the two appearances she makes. The fact that she's listed first suggests, coupled with the fact that she's giving instructions to servants, that she's concerned about the wine running out, she may have some position or function in serving at this wedding. It it seems potentially likely, not not certain. But that her concern with the wine running out may, may well have fell within some sphere of responsibility she actually had at this wedding. So who's there? We get three groups, the mother of Jesus, Jesus, and his disciples. That, that's who's here. But by the way, also notice Jesus now has a group of disciples. At least the five we found in chapter one, possibly more. Who knows? At the speed he's picking them up in chapter one, I wouldn't be surprised if he has a dozen or more. Now, these are not yet apostles. He's not commissioned them yet, but he's got disciples following him. Okay, so that's the setting. A wedding in Canaan and Galilee. Mary's there, Jesus' mother. Jesus is there, his disciples are there. Then we get to the need. The need. The problem. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, this is a a really interesting section of the miracle that this this dialogue happens. Notice this account gives two things. Jesus doing the miracle, but here we have this sub-drama between Jesus and his mother. It begins with Mary's request. Mary's request. It's clearly an implied request. She's not just giving him information. Just thought you might want to know they ran out of wine. Mary's coming to Jesus. She's likely helping with the wedding, and she wants Jesus to take care of the problem somehow. Now, I don't think she's expecting him to work a miracle. He hasn't done any yet. But surely, Jesus has been the most dependable son, the most reliable son in the history of sons. He never had a bad idea. 
No, I'm not, I'm not trying to make light of this. Think of how Mary must have depended upon Jesus, his faithfulness, his wisdom, his ingenuity. The fact that she doesn't go to Joseph also suggests Joseph may well have died already. Certainly by the time Jesus is hanging on the cross, when he gives Mary to John and she stays in his home, Joseph's out of the picture. So likely, Jesus is the man of the house. And she comes to him with this problem. This, would be, this problem would potentially bring shame upon the bridegroom. If you remember Jesus' parables in the other gospels, the bridegroom goes and he gets things ready. And when things are ready, and when he's prepared a house, then he assembles the wedding party. Well, this bridegroom didn't get things ready enough, presumably. And that would look poorly on him. It also means the celebration itself is going to run short. Wine, we're told biblically, is meant for merrymaking. Psalm 104, 14 to 15. You cause the grass to grow, for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth fruit from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen his heart. There's a season and the time for feasting and merrymaking, and a wedding is precisely that time. And this feast, this celebration that may take a week long, is going to potentially have problems. Well, not potentially, it has problems because the wine has run out. And so Mary comes to Jesus. Jesus then corrects her. We get to Jesus' correction. From Mary's request, to Jesus' correction. I almost put in the word rebuke. In a sense, this is definitely a gentle rebuke. This had to sting for her. Now, it doesn't read quite as harshly in Greek as it does in English. In English, today in our culture, he calls it woman. That's just rude. The force of the term would probably be something closer to ma'am. But the significance is what he doesn't call her. Mother. Woman. Something like ma'am. And then, the Greek is, is the translation of a Hebrew idiom. Literally, what to you, this, you and me. Something like that. Um, this is an expression found commonly in the Old Testament, translated something like, what have I to do with you? David says it to the sons of Zeruiah. And in the New Testament, most commonly found on the lips of demoniacs, aghast at the close proximity of Jesus, crying out, for instance, in Luke 4:34, "Ah, what have we to do with you? Jesus of Nazareth. The purpose of the expression is to establish distance, separation between people. And in this context, it would mean something like, "What is it you think we have in common in this matter that I don't recognize we have in common? What is the overlap of spheres here that you seem to think is in place that I'm insisting is not in place? Or, as the ESV says, what does this have to do with me? It, it, this, this is, there's got to be some sting and correction to this. He's correcting it. There's some level of rebuke. Um, D.A. Carson helpfully writes this about it. This must have been extremely difficult for Mary. She had borne him, nursed him. But now he had entered into the purpose of his coming. Everything. Even family ties had to be subordinated to his divine mission. She could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. It is a remarkable fact that everywhere Mary appears in the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is at pains to establish distance between them. 
This is not callousness on Jesus' part. On the cross, he makes provision for her future, but she, like every other person, must come to Jesus as to the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Neither she nor anyone else dare presume to approach him on some inside tract. I think that's well said. And and Carson makes that point that in every other occurrence where Jesus and Mary appear in the Gospels, separation is being established. Whether it be when Jesus is 12 and stays behind at the temple and he says, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? Or whether it's when he's with his disciples and they come and inform him, teacher, your, your mother and your brothers are outside. And he says, who is my mother and my brother but he who does the will of God? Or in Luke 11, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Notice this. Jesus, in every encounter, and in every interaction where he and Mary are in the text together in the Gospels, he's, he's not being rude, he's not being callous, but he is establishing distance. It's almost as if he anticipates that some might make much or too much of Mary. Mary is no mediatrix, co-redeemer. If Mary had any special ends with Jesus, this interaction here in John chapter 2 makes that clear is not the case. She comes to him. She's not rude. She's not bossing around, but there's an implied help. Do something. And Jesus is saying, look, I am the Messiah. I'm about my father's business. What, What do you think? I have interest in this. And he says this publicly. There are servants present because Mary's going to speak to them. And so in this culture, for him to be this clear, this this blunt, there had to be a little sting to it. Now we see in response, okay, sorry, that's the first bit. Woman, what do I have to do with this? His second part of his response, point one here, Jesus distances himself from Mary. Second, he gives, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now, this introduces another major theme of John's gospel to our text. Uh, This is the first time it occurs, but throughout the rest of the gospel, Jesus' hour is going to be looming. And I'll I'll give you a little spoiler as we we look here. In chapter 4, woman at the well. She wants to know about, do I need to worship here on Mount Samaria? Do I have to go to Jerusalem? And he says, well, the Jews did get it right, but, 423, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In John 5, when the Jews and the Pharisees take offense that he dares claim to be the Son of God, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. In John 7, they were seeking to arrest him, and John narrates, but no one laid a hand on him, 730, because his hour had not yet come. John 8, right after he says, before Abraham was, I am, they tried to arrest him because his, but they were, but no one arrested him, sorry, 820, because his hour had not yet come. And then finally, in chapter 12, the transition chapter from Jesus' public ministry to his private ministry, when the Greeks come and Philip brings them to Jesus, Jesus says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then starting the next section, chapter 13, 1, making it extremely clear. We've rounded this corner. Now, before the Feast of Passover, 
When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And this is, of course, what's on Jesus' mind when he begins his prayer in the garden. John 17, 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. So this, this hour business is first introduced here. What is Jesus saying? What he's saying is, from him, the moment of his baptism... I believe from the moment when he is empowered by God and he comes back in the power of the spirit, as Luke frames it, he's, he's on one mission and it's focused with pinpoint precision on his crucifixion. We, we've said this before. Jesus does many things. He helps, he heals, he's compassionate, but fundamentally he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in John's gospel, two things drive Jesus to the cross. Two things. One, the bold claims he makes about himself. So in chapter 5, turn to chapter 5 briefly. In chapter 5, and this is a very intentional escalation on Jesus' part. When we get there, I'll I'll point this out. This is not accidental. In chapter 5, he heals a man, right, with a mat, tells him to carry his mat. And in verse 18, this is why the Jews are seeking, no, sorry, go back further. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. So they're persecuting him because he's working miracles on the Sabbath, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Well, Jesus is going to turn it up a notch. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were all the more seeking to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus claims to deity that that brings on the the threat of death. And the other thing that drives him to the cross are the miracles. Turn to chapter 11. Turn to chapter 11. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And Caiaphas speaks up and we get the conclusion in 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So it's that combination. It's, it's what they perceive as blasphemies, his claims to deity. But that wouldn't be a problem if he wasn't also working notable miracles. But when you put them together, when you get someone making claims like this, working such powerful, notable miracles, that is what crystallizes them into their opposition, and they plot to put him to death. And ultimately, they do succeed. So Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. If, if I'm right, that the two forces that drive Jesus to the cross, that speed him there, are his miracles and his claims to deity, then Jesus working a miracle here would intersect with that. This is the same rationale he uses with his brothers. You don't need the term there, but remember in chapter 7, we have a very similar event where a family member suggests Jesus do something. Jesus rebuffs them, says he, referencing his hour, and then he does it anyway. In seven, his brothers say, look, why why are you going about about in the backwaters of Galilee? Go up publicly to Jerusalem if you are who you say you are. And he tells them, 
my time is not now. Your time is always here. And then he goes up. I think it helps explain what he's factoring in, why he does what he does. Because even though he rebuffs Mary, corrects her, he ends up fulfilling her request. Just as in seven, when his cousins, his, sorry, his brothers come to him, he, he rebuffs them and he ends up doing what they said to do. Except in seven, it, it's explicit. He went up privately and not publicly. And we get the same detail here. He does this miracle privately. He does it privately. He does it where only the disciples and the servants know what's going on. It isn't a big public miracle. This isn't his big coming out as Messiah party in Nazareth. He, he does do it, but his concern is on his hour. And I think it's something like, if I make too big of a deal of myself, if I perform too notable of a miracle at this time, then the timing, because not only does Jesus need to die on the cross, according to Daniel's prophecy, he needs to die on a specific day, the Passover of a specific year. And so your blank here is he controls the timing. In John's gospel, Jesus absolutely controls the timing. He speeds it up, he slows it down, he instigates conflict in chapter 5. And here, with his eye on his hour, now of course, Mary isn't considering any of these things. They're not on her mind. It's simply, here's a wedding feast. Here, presumably, are some of our friends. We have this problem. They're encountering this potential shame. Please help. Jesus has his mind on his father's business. Jesus has his eye on his hour and his need to control the timing. Then notice in response point C, Mary's faith. Mary's faith. There are two dangers in dealing with Mary in the Gospels. One is to make too much of her, to, to elevate her to co-redemptrix, to elevate her to, to some position she does not have. And, and, and the Gospels guard us against this. The other is to make too little of her. We don't want to do that, so we'll just never talk about her. Well, in the Magnificat, when she goes and bursts into song, and Elizabeth sees her, she says, from now on, all men will call you blessed. And here we see her faith. No doubt, Jesus' correction, his gentle rebuke, had some sting to it. She doesn't bristle. She doesn't push back. She doesn't defend. She doesn't say, is that how you talk to your mother? She submits. She humbles herself. And she looks to the servants and says, whatever he tells you, do. Do whatever he tells you. Mary humbly accepts his correction. This also follows another pattern we see in the Gospels of a request being made to Jesus, an initial rebuff by Jesus, persistent faith, and then granting of the request. You think of the Syrophoenician woman. And Jesus says it's not good for the children's food to be given to dogs. And rather than taking offense at being likened to a dog, she says, ah, but even the dogs get to eat the scraps, and Jesus grants her request. We're seeing persistent, humble faith. Mary entrusts the matter to Jesus. She's sure he'll do what's right. He'll do what he sees seems good. He'll do what he thinks is fitting. She has faith. She has faith. It is a good example. And again, when we ask for things from the Lord and he says no, or not now, or not in the way that we want, we too should recognize he's good. He can be trusted. He knows what he is about. He has his purposes. And we too should receive from his hand and trust him, whatever he tells you do. This may echo even um, Pharaoh in Genesis 41, 55. 
after Joseph has interpreted his dream and they're preparing for the famine um, in, in Genesis one twenty eight. God blessed them and God, no, sorry, Genesis 41, 55. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. Mary may even be echoing that. So that's the need, and that's the interaction. Mary no longer has special ends with Jesus. Whatever she had before now, she's welcome to come, but she comes Alongside of every other disciple, she comes alongside every other believer. There's no special inside track for her. Jesus loves his mother. Jesus cares for his mother. He's going to provide a home for her after his death. But Mary also must come to the Messiah with humble faith. Point three, the sign. The sign. Verses six through nine. Let's read that now. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have freely drunk, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Okay. So the movement's pretty clear. We're in some private place because only the servants know what's going on. We've got these stone jars for purification present. So it's Jesus, the disciples, we learn in verse 11, and the servants... We're not in the main feasting hall or wherever that's taking place. And in response to Mary receiving the gentle rebuke, Mary humbling herself, submitting herself to Jesus, Jesus goes ahead and fulfills her request. She takes the correction. He's happy to bless and serve. And what's remarkable is we're never even told when the miracle happens. In what verse does the miracle happen? We learn it had happened when we get to verse um, 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. We don't even know when it happens. Somewhere in between them drawing the water from the well, pouring it into the jars to the brim, and then pouring some and bringing it to the head waiter, this miracle takes place. I want to notice four things about the sign. Four things about the sign. First, John highlights its quantity, its scope, its magnitude. This is a massive amount of wine. About 180 gallons of wine. Massive in scope. Because remember, this is revealing Jesus' glory. So what do we see? We see the the magnitude of his power. We see the, the, the quantity of his power. 180 gallons. He also emphasizes the quality It's not just that Jesus can make a lot of wine. He makes great wine, the best wine. So much so that it's surprising and shocking to the head waiter. He calls the bridegroom and the master of the feast, verse 9, and tasted the water become wine. It did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. Now that logic makes sense. Anytime you're serving food or, or drink, you bring out the best stuff first. And then, 
as people's taste buds are dulled, as time's gone on, literally here they become inebriated, is what the, the bridegroom says. Then, then when they won't notice as much, you bring out the second tier stuff and the third tier stuff. That, that's surprising to the bridegroom that you had a vintage like this and you saved it for last? What are you doing? And so we get this detail revealing not just the quantity, a massive amount of wine, but this is exceptional wine. This is, this is great wine. The quality, the best wine. A third thing, I think, is demonstrated by what is not said. John doesn't even tell us how this miracle takes place. Jesus doesn't put his hands over it. He, he doesn't even speak, become wine. It just happens. What you get the impression is his power is so great that this is a non-issue. This isn't hard. He doesn't break a sweat. The blank here being that demonstrates Jesus' divine power. We've already been told in John 1, verses 3 and 3, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that has been made. If Jesus made all things, including the earth and the heavens and the stars and the planets, well then, of course, 180 gallons of wine is nothing. And so we see what a non-issue this is. This isn't difficult. It just happens. Why? Because he wills it. Why? Because this is the same one who spoke, let it be, and it became. He said, let there be light, and there was light. That, that's why. And point D, it does not draw attention to Jesus. It does not draw attention to Jesus. And here, I think, is how this fits in with his purpose to fulfill his mission, his hour, and honoring his mother, meeting her request if he can. I mean, he's he's not uncaring. It is important for Mary to recognize she needs to come to him now, now that he's been baptized, now that he's been anointed. She, She needs to come to him like every other disciple. But when she does come to him like every other disciple, in faith, humbly, as it fits his purpose, he is happy to grant her request. And he does it in a way that does not draw attention to himself unduly. Because, of course, he has to keep his eye on the hour. Point E, and in doing so, he honors both his mother and the marriage. He honors both his mother and the marriage. This is the heart of our Savior. If you think of Jesus as a cosmic killjoy, as a hard taskmaster, think again. Even as his mind is on his upcoming death, When he says, my hour is not yet here, the hour is the crucifixion. The hour is the death, the burial, the resurrection. And he could have said, look, I'm I'm getting ready to die. You guys deal with this. No, he let, let, let the celebration continue. It is not fitting for it to end prematurely. If I'm able, let me honor my mother's request. Let these people celebrate. Let them enjoy God's good gifts. He honors both his mother and the marriage, and marriage in principle and in general. And he demonstrates his power, which brings us point four to the conclusion. The conclusion, verses 11 and 12. John here is going to direct us to what to make of this. Okay? After the, I'm sorry, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. 
and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And we know from the end of the gospel, this is a book of signs. Many other signs Jesus did, but these were written that you might believe, which means this sign was written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John chose this miracle and not others that you and I might believe. We also learned this miracle manifested Jesus' glory. This miracle manifested Jesus' glory. And this is important not to miss here. In John chapter 6, Jesus rebukes a massive crowd who had just wanted to make him king by force that he'd fed miraculously. And when they come across the other side of the sea and they say, hey, what are you doing here? He says, truly, you do not seek me because you saw the sign, but because you had your fill of the loaves. Which means in Jesus' thinking, seeing and understanding the significance of a sign is distinct from seeing a miracle. The whole reason they came across... The sea was because they saw him miraculously feed out of nothing so many people. I mean, in one sense, they saw the miracle. What they didn't see is its significance, as he's going to go on and make clear, I'm the, I'm the bread come down from heaven. You're not really tracking with that, are you? And they leave. It's a hard saying. No doubt, they saw the miracle. They didn't see its significance. And so we need to make sure that we see the significance. It's not just, wow, water to wine, but rather it reveals something about Jesus and his glory, which of course links back to, go back to chapter one with the introduction. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So this the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So we need to look and see and behold glory and not just a party trick. Not just, it's not just a wedding that was saved. But Jesus is revealing his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So how, how does that work? Well, tying in, with John's thesis, he wants us not just to believe in Jesus in some general esoteric sense, but he wants us to believe two specific things about Jesus. Many other signs Jesus did in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book, but these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I'm looking to see how these two purposes are served in this miracle. So here's what I would suggest to you first. As the Son of God who spoke all things into being. This miracle, its staggering scope, its power, the ease with which it is not even mentioned how it was done, it just somewhere happens in the text, reveals this, this is the Son of God. This is, this is the same type of power that spoke creation into being. Let there be light, and there was light. Later, we'll see him just call Lazarus out of the tomb. We're going to see the power of his word, but this is that first inkling of that power. And second, as the Christ who will bring the kingdom. The messianic kingdom frequently is connected with feasting and celebration. The idea being Israel 
is under the thumb of some foreign ruler, but eventually the Messiah will come. He will set all things right. He will establish a kingdom where Israel is elevated among the nations, where the other nations come and do homage to them, and then will be the time for feasting, and then will be the time for rejoicing. We know of the future coming marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me read to you how Amos 9, 13, and 14 describes this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed and the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. If Jesus is the Messiah, then Jesus is one who will set up such a kingdom And here in this glimpse, yes, yes, there's suffering ahead and there's death and there's humiliation. But here at this first miracle, we should be convinced he is. Is he capable to bring about such a state of affairs? Is he capable of producing such a blessed setting? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. This is what he tells the disciples right at the Last Supper. I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in the kingdom. So this miracle, the the majestic scope of it, the celebratory nature of it, this is the one who will bring in God's kingdom. Yes, it's not the next thing on the agenda, but he will. He will. Now, before we sing our final song, and we will, I want to turn to chapter 12. Turn to chapter 12 briefly. Now, his disciples saw this. The disciples saw the miracle, and they saw the glory behind the miracle, and they believed. Note also that this suggests degrees of faith, because Jesus has already commended Nathanael for believing, and yet here his disciples believed. It's intensified. It's strengthened. They've got more information. Their, their faith is growing, right? But there are at least three responses to Jesus in John's gospel. And so all of us in this room are going to fall into one of these three categories. At the close of Jesus' public ministry, John 12 is that close. John, the narrator, gives us this in verse 36, middle of the verse. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself away from them. Jesus is done with his public ministry in John's gospel. Let me get this narration. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So one response to these signs is unbelief. Sadly, it's the majority response. You can just see, okay, so we made some wine. And not see the glory. Jump a little lower. Down to verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities came to believe in him for fear in the Pharisee. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The, the other response is to sort of think something but be too ashamed, too timid, too fearful of man to say anything, to go public. Well, and of course, the third and best response is that of the disciples here in, in verse 11. They believed in him. 
John's been working his way up to this. We've had the testimony of John the narrator. We've had the testimony of John the Baptist. We've had the testimony of Andrew, the testimony of Philip, the testimony of Nathaniel. John the Baptist referencing the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And now we see the first of his miraculous works where Jesus consecrates this marriage. He amens the celebration. He takes water and he replaces it, turns it into the best wine these people had ever had. He honors his mother. He does it without attracting attention to himself. He doesn't take the spotlight off of the wedding couple. And he reveals his glory to his disciples. And by implication, us, because we're tagging along with John as he writes this, and we're seeing. So my prayer as we close is that God would help us to see his glory, that we would see Jesus Christ for who he is with eyes of faith, that we would fall in step with his disciples. And even if we already believe, just as Nathaniel has already believed, that we might believe more, our faith would grow. Um, Let me have a word of prayer, and I'll call the worship team up. Lord God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And for those of us who already see, open our eyes further that we might behold wondrous things in your word. We would see the glory of your son. We know that seeing glory is the vehicle used to transform us from one degree of glory to another. And so, Lord, if there are any here who are blinded to the glory of your son, I pray that you would speak life and light into their hearts, that the veil might be removed that they might come to glorious life by believing in his name. And for those of us who do believe in his name, grant us more insight, more clarity, more vision, that we might behold more glory and be changed. In Jesus' name, amen.